Okay, we've, we're working our way through Acts. I think Josiah did one verse last week. <laughs> we, got it to a, we, think we got it to a good discussion. That, uh, <clears throat> so it's Acts chapter 19. And uh, we'll start at verse 11. And uh, somebody would read uh, verse 11 and uh, 12. Somebody read that for me. <clears throat> God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, <clears throat> and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Yeah. Can I get you a water drum? I have one. I have one. Yep. <clears throat> There's a lot of power in this verse, and uh, it's uh, interesting that the, the previous verses, actually the previous few chapters, are not talking about power so much. They're talking about truth. And uh, so what we have is the combination of truth and power, and that is what the gospel is. The gospel is the truth. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So uh, sometimes in the book of Acts, it's talking about truth. And other times in the, in the book of Acts, it's talking about power. And uh, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says uh, uh, that Jesus is, the word became flesh and he was full of grace and truth. And uh, you get the same combination there because grace has, is God moving with power? That's the idea of grace. Uh, it's, it's God's ability to move in powerful ways. And, and so you have the combination there. Jesus came not only with truth, but he came with grace. He came with power. And uh, when the early church started, it came with truth and it came with grace. And you need both in order to have the full display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any, uh, any testimonies of power, God's power in your life? Could, you, could somebody just take 30 seconds and tell me something that's happened recently that was evidence of God's power at work? That's wonderful. Yeah. And you know, these are, these are little evidences. Some of them are not so little. Evidences of, of God's power in, in our lives. The, the Lord not only brings us truth, he brings us power. Any other testimony this morning of God's power? Maybe in the past few days that you've evidenced something that where God, you, you know that God powerfully worked for you. Yeah. Able to do what he promised to do. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's a, that's a, uh, a huge uh, trial and uh, takes great power to, to move through it with, with uh, confidence and with balance and, and, and peace. Well, this is what the verse says. <clears throat> it was powerful stuff. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Powerful government over, over the, the diseases of, of life and powerful government over the demons in life. And they're both there. Uh, so uh, should we expect that this kind of uh, action today uh, where, you know, every time we carry a handkerchief, there's power in it and... Uh, you know, just, you know, somebody, I got a handkerchief here. <laughs> I'm not trying to make light of it, but uh, I, 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 want to, I want to impress upon us the fact that God does not always work so miraculously, so openly miraculously as this. Should we expect it or not? Very special time. Yeah. Yep. And transitional time. And God's signs and God's miracles are upon this particular era of people and believers, and so that the words can spread further away to uh, different areas. So we are not in particularly then. Mm -hmm. So I see, I need to read it in a way that applies to those people, their context. Yeah. When we examine the scriptures historically, we see that there are times in God's dealing with people that there are massive outpourings of miracle. And then there's seeming quietness. It's not that God isn't a miracle-working God every day. He does. And we see these miracles from time to, uh, to time in our life that impress upon us and we see it. Maybe it's the healing of our child. Maybe it's the comfort we get during a time of trial and the death of a loved one. Uh, but not the handkerchief thing, right? Now, you tell me in the history of Israel when there was the handkerchief experience. That's that, during the time of Jesus. That was uh, mighty miracles being done on a daily basis, right? I mean, every day. People were being healed. Every day, the demons were being cast out. And the apostolic period was just an extension of Jesus' ministry. So from the time Jesus started his ministry, right through the book of Acts, we, we have this time of, of mighty miracles. What about in the Old Testament? Was it always miracle? Was it always handkerchief moments? Time of Elijah. During the time of Elijah and Elisha, there was a whole bunch of miracles going on. After that, 
you know? Isaiah couldn't buy a miracle. <laughs> Jeremiah couldn't buy a miracle. Yeah. And then continue to be true to God and to become prophet. Yeah. Well, it was a miracle for him. Right. But you see, he didn't have this power, right, that that uh, that the apostle Paul had. But certainly Elijah had it, Elisha had it. Who else had it? Moses. Moses. So when you when you look at the Old Testament, you'll see times where God bursts out with mighty power for through, through a particular minister like Moses or Elijah, Elisha, that combination. And then long periods when there isn't that, that power. And uh, so God uh, uses power dis, uh, discriminately. He uses his power discriminately. And sometimes it frustrates us because God, we wish God would do something mighty and miraculous right now, you know. Lord, save my neighbor, all right? Or, Lord. I mean, here in North America, we're so focused on North America. How do we know it's not happening in Asia, in African countries? Just because we don't care about it doesn't mean it's not happening. Good point. Good point. It, it could be in different geographical localities as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Which is, I think, where we come back to, like, in this case, like, the motivation for, or the purpose for the healing, right? And especially in the Book of Acts and even in Jesus' time, demonstration of authority, demonstration of the truth behind the word, and it was for the purpose of spreading the message, and I think that happens in the same way, um, now, like, now at times as well. And as you say, Jim, it's, it's not that miracles don't happen now, or it's not that miracles aren't happening in other places, but it's not as commonplace as certain specific periods of time or certain places that we think of necessarily. Yes. Once again, he says, because, you know, there's not pastors all over the world and preachers all over the world in, in certain third world countries or wherever. So the messages could be being spread the same way they spread in the Old Testament. It could, that could well be. Yeah, that could well be. And there's one more time when these mighty works are going to be manifest. What, when is that time? At the Lord's coming, all right? During the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, the witnesses are going to have mighty power. The two witnesses are going to have fantastic power. Call down fire on their enemies. Don't you wish you could do that sometimes? <laughs> you're like, no, you're not, you're not vindictive like me, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, that's what's going to happen uh, in, in the, the tribulation time, and I believe we're heading up to that very quickly. I believe the Lord's coming is very soon, and I believe that along with the trouble in the tribulation, there's going to be great power manifest from God at the same time.
two days was the surgeon went in the dog the surgeon looked at him and said it's gone. It's gone. So it's gone. And they yeah. never returned. It never returned. Yeah. This was like a very bad type of cancer. Wonderful. Yeah. So those miracles do happen. They do happen. And and God is a miracle working God and he's working miracles every day. It's just that this is an outburst. This is a this is a not just a raindrops of mercy. This is a huge thunderstorm of blessing, right? <laughs> that, that came down on the people. Uh, it was a it was a wonderful thing to see. But some people tried to tap into this power. Let's somebody read verse thirteen to sixteen. Once again, it's a story about power. Which kingdom has the greater power? And we know which kingdom has the greater power. Do you have a verse for that? 1 John 4 and 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Right? That's a good, that's a good verse to hang on to when, when you're in a power struggle. All right, 1 John 4 and 4. Uh, but uh, these Jews wanted to duplicate uh, Paul's uh, miracle of casting out demons, and so uh, they tried. The seven sons of Sceva tried to do it, and uh, they got uh, beaten up by the, by the evil spirits. Uh, we must be very careful when we're trying to tangle with evil spirits. We must be very careful. So what do you think are the preconditions that are necessary for Christians to tangle with evil spirits. What are the preconditions? Okay, not alone, prayer, fasting. Little faith. So you, you need faith in the Lord. Yeah. But also prior to that situation, there was a demon that they couldn't, they said, why couldn't we do it? And he said, also, prayer and fasting. With prayer, and, and prayer, once again, is the language of faith. All right? So, so prayers are necessary. Uh, uh, and, and fasting is a sign of submission to God. It's a sign of our serious intent before the Lord. So that's important. Yeah. Any other uh, preparations necessary? Covering ourselves in the blood of Jesus, the cl especially the cleansing of the blood. Lord, if I've got sin in my life, please cleanse me, because I don't want to confront Satan 
with, with uh, uh, sin in my life. And we know that we all sin every day, but we, we have the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. We have the forgiveness that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have to tangle with Satan in any way, shape, or form, make sure you've asked the Lord to forgive you and cleanse you first from your sins. Make sure you're trusting him. Make sure you're submitting to God. There's a good verse in James chapter 4, verse 7. And James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The proper use of spiritual authority is for those who are under authority. Before you can use spiritual power and authority, you must be under spiritual power and authority. These seven sons of Sceva did not know the name of Jesus. They didn't trust in Jesus. They were just kind of using it willy-nilly because they thought it was some kind of a mantra, some kind of a magic cure, and, and uh, they weren't under the authority of Christ. But James 4 and 7 tells us this. If you want to have authority to tell the devil to leave you or to leave somebody else, make sure you've submitted to God first. In prayer, confession, exercising faith, sometimes fasting, all these things we've talked about, make sure that you've submitted to God. And then, you see, when you're under authority, you have authority. When you're under authority, you have authority. Power works on a, 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 through authority structures. And when I'm under the proper authority and I'm in my proper place, then I have authority to be able to tell the devil to leave from me. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because you see, the devil's very authority conscious. And, and the demons here knew that there was a bogus authority going on. They knew these guys didn't have the authority because they weren't properly related to Jesus. And so the devil said, I'm calling your bluff. You guys are fakes. And, and the devil beat them up. And that's what could happen to people who are not under the proper authority. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, would you read verse 17 then to, to, to uh, 20? Okay. Alice, thank you. Yeah. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in all honor. Many of those who visited now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number of Yes. So there's two kingdoms. You're in one or the other. Both of them have power. Satan has been given power by God to exercise rule in his designated area of government. And one day the Lord said, enough, you have no more power. But the Lord allows the devil to have power. It's not that there's some kind of a struggle where two equal and opposite forces are kind of fighting for one another. 
The Lord has all power. And whatever power there is in the universe is delegated. So for a time, Satan has delegated power. It's not that, oh, the Lord's trying to take the power away and Satan doesn't have any, uh, uh, doesn't, uh, Satan is, is able to resist God. No way. Satan is a created being. His power is only delegated by God. And at the proper time, and in, in the proper place, God is going to strip him of that power, and he will have none. It's only delegated authority that Satan has. And that's why we should not fear Satan, because any authority it comes from God. Jesus said to Pilate, what did, what did Jesus say to Pilate when, when the Pilate said, uh, don't you know who I am? Do you remember what, he, what Jesus said to Pilate? You can have no, or no, no power over me on, unless, I, unless it was given to you from above. In other words, all the evil authority, it's, it's all delegated power, right? Because all power, all power is held by the Almighty God. And we might wonder, why does he delegate that authority? For his own purposes. For his own purposes. And, and at the proper time, he strips people of that power as well. And he strips the devil of the power. So here, the devil's kingdom was being systematically dismantled by the gospel, by the influence of the gospel. And you could tell not only by the people coming to Christ, but by their willingness to what? What, ha what, what happened here? So what was, the, what was the, the tangible proof of their willingness to leave the kingdom of darkness? They burned the scrolls. And what were these scrolls about? Books of sorcery, incantations, objects maybe that held the ceremonial power and whatever there was, you see. And uh, what is the proof of the sincerity of their actions? How much, how much money did this amount to? 50,000. 50,000 what? Drachma. Now, the drachma, what, what in, our, in, in uh, comparison, a drachma was a day's wages. So let's figure it out. $5.7 million at minimum wage. At minimum wage, 5.7. But it probably, you know, at median, median wage, <laughs> Probably closer to fifty million or sixty million dollars. You see, this was a huge divestment that these people made. Huge, all this stuff. You know, they could have sold it on eBay and made a lot of money. <laughs> I think that's the point. They could have sold it. Yeah, they could have sold it. They could have sold it. Yeah. But their, their, their intention was to be pure and not to contaminate somebody else. So they took it out and they burned it. Is, it, is there stuff in our lives that should be dealt with that way? Is there stuff in our lives? Just got to burn it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a demonstration of 
swapping out one source of power for one that's greater in some ways, right? It's that dichotomy between the source of their power in their writings and their ceremonial objects for the power of Jesus, which actually has real power. Yeah. It's just as a little aside, a uh, little story. Uh, I, I had a big library uh, once upon a time. It's it shrunk now that it moved into a smaller accommodation. Uh, but I had a, a book that was written by a New Age teacher. But you know, I kept the book. Somebody gave it to me, but I kept it because it had some interesting ideas. And I thought, oh, I probably might use it as reference or just might be able to uh, get something out of it. So it was sitting there in my library. One of my daughter's friends was in the library, and she was looking through the books. I said, what do you think of the books? She says, well, I don't think much of these books, except for this one book. And she pulled it out, and she says, that's the book I like. I thought to myself, man, I just, I just blew my witness. Because <laughs> I, I got that in my library. In other words, I was, I was allowing that to be there amongst the books that I considered to be important and to be valuable. And uh, uh, there it was. She picked it up. And I thought to myself, it's almost like the Holy Spirit <laughs> picking, picking out, out a book and saying, Jim, this, this book shouldn't be in your library. It should be burned. So I, guess what I did? <laughs> I burned it. Burned it. And because uh, uh, it shouldn't have been there. But there's other things in our life. Where, you know, if there's habits that cling to us, if there's stuff that, that uh, we know compromises our Christian life, we got to be serious about it. And sometimes we just got to take it out and burn it. Right. So uh, that's uh, an application of, of this passage. Uh, any, any things you've had to burn in your life? Any things you've had to get really, really tough on yourself with? Well, think about it. <laughs> think about it, because uh, uh, sometimes we lose our effectiveness for the Lord because we're hanging on to those things. And they might be things that in and of themselves are not evil. They might be just legitimate pleasures, but they're keeping us from full devotion to Christ. And, and uh, sometimes it's those things that need to be gotten rid of so that we can uh, get, get rid of the things that, that, that are weights in our life, that drag us down, that keep us from running the race. Let's go on. Uh, verse 21 and 22, would somebody read that? Some people uh, see this as a, as a turning point in Paul's ministry. He's coming, 
Well, he's in the middle of the third missionary journey, but he gets an idea. He says, I have a destination in mind, and it's Rome, the center of that world at the time, right? The center of the empire, and he sets his sights on it. And uh, for the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is on his way to Rome. And we know what happens in Rome. What happens in Rome for Paul? He testifies before Caesar, and what else? And he's killed. That's right. He's imprisoned. Uh, He probably was imprisoned a couple of times and set free for a little while, and then imprisoned again, and then finally he was, uh, uh, tradition tells us that he was beheaded. So he sets his sights on, on Rome. And it's interesting to compare here uh, the book of Luke, of course, written by the same author, because in Luke, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, just, just turn over and look at that, that verse Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Just to see the poetry in this. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, David Gooding in his book on the the gospel of Luke says the, the Gospel of Luke can be divided into two parts, and he uses this as the dividing verse, because the first part is the coming of Jesus, and the second part is his departure. So when, he, when Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem, he's setting his eyes on his death, resurrection, returning to glory. So the, for the first part of Luke... It's not about Jerusalem. It's about his ministry, and mainly in Galilee. And he's, it, everything is blossom, uh, blossoming, and, and the gospel is burgeoning, and, and thousands of people are, 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 are attending him. And it's a wonderful thing. Jesus is coming. Right? And then that you get to this verse, he sets his sight on Jerusalem, and he's going. You know, sometimes we have to have our eye on both of these things in our life. It's good to have a view of the end game, on the end part of life, on the going, the departure. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We need to think about not only making our way in this world, but, hey, we're heading towards our departure. We're heading for glory. We need to prepare for that. So in in Luke, Jesus turns to Jerusalem, and the the latter part of Luke is all about his journey towards Jerusalem, towards his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, his departure. And uh, in in, in Acts, Paul here sets his sight on Jerusalem. And I don't know what what he was thinking in his heart, whether he knew that that there was going to be uh, bonds and imprisonment uh, a, a couple of chapters from now, we, we, Paul says that. I know what's ha- going to happen to me. There's going to be bonds and imprisonment. And so perhaps he knew that his destiny was Rome for his final act of witnessing to the emperor and then perhaps being, being martyred. Uh, uh, Paul had his eye on the end game. I love how casually he described, like, after I've been there, I must visit Rome also, as if it's like one town over, but it's like hundreds of 
thousands of kilometers away. Yeah. Nowhere close, and like further than he's, he's gone at that point in some ways. Like it's, it's, it's a long distance. <laughs> yeah. But it's that, like the trust even in that, at that time, he's been shipwrecked so many times, he's been in prison, but he's like, yeah, I'm going to get to Rome also. Just a, there's trust in that. Yeah. Faith. Yep, we're going to make it to Rome. And I think that his intention built and built and built until finally it was, it, it, it was a, uh, the beacon light that he was heading towards. We're going to get to Rome. It was his calling. It was his calling, yeah. And he ended up witnessing in the, in the, the high court in Rome uh, in, in, right before the, 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 uh, the Caesar. So, uh, and wrote several of his letters that we love the most probably during his imprisonment in Rome. During his imprisonment, that's right. So he, he, he does the second part of his uh, missionary uh, journey, the, the third missionary journey. Uh, he travels through Macedonia and uh, Ki. In other words, he goes back over the top of, of the Aegean Sea and he goes down into the, the uh, Greek peninsula. Uh, Ki is, is Greece the southern part of Greece, and goes back and he visits Corinth and he visits Athens and all the places where he'd been preaching. He visits Thessalonica, he visits Philippi, goes back to all these places and uh, uh, just confirms the, the believers. But there was also something else that uh, he was doing on his third missionary journey and it had to do with money. Does, does anybody know what he was doing? Other verses... Uh, uh, tell us in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, he was collecting an offering for the Jerusalem saints who were going through a great deal of persecution and there was famine. And so uh, in, in Israel there was a lot of trouble going on and, and he was collecting uh, uh, chari charitable connect, uh, collections for the, for the saints in Jerusalem who were going through great trouble. So you read about that from time to time in, in Paul's letters, the collection for for the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, let's, let's uh, yeah, we got time here. Uh, let's go back to Book of Acts. I'm parked in, uh, let's read the next uh, segment. Uh, verse 23, well, let's read 23 right to the end because it's just a big historical sequence here, big scene. Somebody read that for me. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about Troy. A swordsman named Demetrius, who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, "Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see in here." Keep going. Yep. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Raise Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Artemis.
and he calls traveling companions from Macedonia and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting something from another. Most of the people did not even know what they were. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, greatest argument of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, don't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? image which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed their gods. But if then, Demetrius, his fellow craftsmen, have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are no promises. They can press if there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in the legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this motion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you for that long read. And it's just, it's one story. Uh, and, uh, Kathy and I had the privilege a number of years ago to uh, take a trip through this area, and we went to Ephesus, and we went to the amphitheater, because it is it has survived almost entirely intact. Uh, outdoor amphitheater on the side of a of a hill, overlooking the uh, the, the river valley, and uh, it seats maybe twenty five thousand people, and uh, it's all stonework, uh, so it's it's all survived. And uh, when you stand on the, uh, on the stage, the acoustics are so perfect that you don't need amplification. You, uh, Kathy could sit in the back row, remember that? Sit in the back row, actually saying, how great thou art. <laughs> I got down there and sang, and sang a song. Just, and Kathy said, yeah, I heard you, because the amplification is so perfect. That's where they went, because they were looking for a venue that was big enough for this disturbance, you see. And so the people came charging down the streets of Ephesus, and it was a big city. And uh, people joined. They didn't even know why they were joining. You know, they, they just heard, well, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They, don't, they didn't know what caused the uproar. And so there were probably several thousands of people who had gathered in the amphitheater, and it was a mob. And they were, they were, they were uh, whipping themselves up into a fury. And that's why the Christians said to Paul, don't go in there. You know, in another place, Paul says, we fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. And I think he was referring back to this, this mob that was threatening to kill him. And it was most unruly and most uh, threatening to life. Uh, any thoughts about what we read? 
By the way, Artemis is, and Diana, they're the, two, they're, they're the same um, uh, goddess, right? Uh, uh, Artemis uh, or Diana of the Ephesians, uh, she's a goddess that represents uh, uh, the power of nature, all of, the, all of nature. You know, people who are tree huggers and so on, they, they would be into uh, uh, Diana or Artemis. And also uh, the power of motherhood. And the, the actual idol of, of uh, Artemis or Diana is of a woman, and she's got multiple breasts. Not just two, she's got multiple breasts because she's totally fertile. And, and, and so it's a, it's, it was a fertility goddess and a fertility cult, uh, both in nature and the human fertility and that's what Diana celebrated. And there was a lot of orgies. There was a lot of, of uh, uh, ceremonies that they did that were most ungodly that were surrounding the worship of Diana or Art- Artemis. Connections. Why this story when we're talking about demonic power? When we're talking about demonic power, And now we're talking about idolatry, the worship of Diana. You've got two things. You've got this idol worship and you've got demonic power. Are they connected? How are they connected? The source is Satan, okay? Uh, Satan produces uh, aspects of of, uh, uh, those books that we were talking about, the the, the incantations, the sorcery. But Satan also works through the production of idols. And how do we know this? Do you have a, a, a verse which tells us this? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. All right, First Corinthians 9, 19 and 20 sheds some light on this connection between, between uh, sorcery, uh, witchcraft, uh, demonic uh, uh, power, and, and idols. And this is what it, it says. Uh, I've got the wrong verse. Wait a minute now. Um, And I don't know if I can find it here. I'll just have to tell you what it says, and you'll have to believe me. It says that when you worship to an idol, oh, there it is. It's 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. It says, uh, uh, consider then the people of Israel, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. So, when they were worshipping Diana or Artemis, who were they worshipping who was behind Diana? A devil. 
Idolatry ends up to be devil worship. Idolatry. And when we make our own idols, because they don't have to be physical idols. You know? Some people idolize sports figures. They, they, or, they idolize uh, their golf, or they idolize baseball, or something. They're, they're, just, they're just addicted to, uh, to sports and things like that, you see, whether, whether spectator sports or playing them themselves, you see. They get addicted, and behind that, is a de- there's a demon of golf. There's a demon of baseball. There's a demon behind it, you see, who is using it for destructive purposes. Not that the thing in itself is, is wrong. See, but but the, the addiction to it becomes demonic. That's why it is so hard to get off addictions. Because it's idolatry. And behind the idol is a demon. But then also our society, our society, it becomes, we are so affluent that what I've also heard is that we make ourselves as if we're God. Oh. We do not rely on God. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So whatever becomes a, a, an idol in our lives, behind the idol is demonic power to hold us into that into that addiction or into that obsession. And uh, uh, so, we, not only do we have to contend with our flesh, we have to contend with the devil. Lord, deliver me from this addiction. Deliver me from this obsession because uh, Satan has got me in his grips. You know, behind behind alcohol is a demon of alcohol. A lot of people during prohibition years would say, call it the, the, the demon in the bottle. Because behind alcohol and the addiction to alcohol is a demon. Behind Behind uh, uh, computer games is a demon who is addicting young people big time to spend 8, 10, 12 hours a day playing this one game. That is demonic power, not just the flesh, not just their sin that's holding them there. It's demonic power, and that's why... It's so hard to break because there's spiritual forces that are holding people in bondage because of it. So I didn't know that the devil was so everywhere, so ubiquitous, so everywhere. And he is, you see, he's working. And it's a big, it's a big multinational corporation that the devil's running. And he's coming after all of us. And he is trying by all means to trip us up. And one of the means that he trips us up is when we start to idolize things. And that's why it's in this chapter. You get this outward display of demonic, and then you get the veiled display, which is the idolatry part. And both of them can come after us. And and unless we think we're too sophisticated to be idolaters, Idolatry is big. I was, last week I was talking about money. People idolize money. Behind, behind uh, uh, greed, greed is idolatry. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Be, be, behind greed is idolatry. Behind idolatry is a devil. I think it's so interesting, too, that these two passages, the, the linking thing between them as we asked before, 
is the idea of, of wealth and money. You know, we have the sorcerers who give up their things, burn them, and it tells us the amount that they were worth even, and they willingly dispose of it. And yet the first thing that this man says is, our trade is going to disappear. Our source of livelihood is going to be gone. Yep. It's about their well-being and their, their, their monetary status. Absolutely. If he keeps preaching that we're not going to have jobs anymore, there goes our funding. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm obsessed with money, uh, I'm in the devil's stronghold. And I, as I said last week, this is something that's, that was capturing my heart, causing me distress in my life because I got too focused on it, too focused on it, become obsessed with it. See? And when you're obsessed with something like that, the devil's got you in his clutches because he is, he's behind all idolatry. Any other comments? And self-reliance is another idol, idol you know. The self becomes the, the greatest idol <laughs> if we worship ourselves. I'm finding it even in the counseling field that I'm in, is it going more towards self-help? Self-help. And it's, it's getting more um, oppressive for individuals like myself and others who are Christians to try and be able, how do we say this without getting Yeah. Well, on that vein too, Jim, I've heard it said that we can argue that any sin spouts from idolatry because it's putting something before God. It's either our preferences or ideas, our pleasure or whatever. Every time we sin, we are putting something in the place of God saying, we know better than God. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So there's a triumvirate of, of things here. Uh, I, I, I refer to this triumvirate, sin, self, Satan. Those are the three things that we got to fight. We've got to fight our sins, we've got to fight ourselves, and we've got to fight Satan. Uh, uh, and, and they're all linked, right? What, uh, as, as you were saying, Andrew, when, you get, when I get into any sin, Satan is there to take advantage. And, and uh, especially today, it's... It's not the worship of Artemis or, or Diana. It's the worship of self. Narcissism is the diagnosis of the day. You know, he's a narcissist. Well, narcissism is in all of us. It's, it's, it's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. Narcissus was a, was a Greek figure in mythology who couldn't stop looking at himself, at his reflection in the water. That's right. He, he fell into it and died, right? He couldn't stop looking at himself. Everything, when it comes to advertising, when it comes to promoting everything, it's all about, well, you can look better yourself. Just do it yourself. You know. Selfies. Selfies. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. See, and so the devil's behind that as well. He's working. He doesn't mind if we, if we worship ourselves because 
at the end of the day, if we worship anything other than God, the worship by default goes to Satan. Satan. He doesn't mind if we worship ourselves. He ends up getting that worship. What did he do to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did he promote himself? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the promotion of self. This is good for you. This is, this is for your benefit. You can be the top dog. You can be the head honcho. And you will be like God. You, can do, you don't need God. You can do everything yourself. So we see how this chapter in Acts holds together. Paul is dismantling, by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, he's dismantling the, the, the power of evil that was holding these people in its sway. And the evidence was that they, not only that they were turning uh, uh, to Jesus, they were turning away from their evil uh, powers and, and from their idolatry. So it's a very wonderful, vivid chapter of the spiritual warfare that goes on in our lives as, as well. Any other thoughts or comments? I just find this chapter is very powerful the way that Luke wrote it. He will have you know, the sections of Paul go to the area and preach and the Holy Spirit baptizes people. The next thing is the sorcerers who have to up evil It is riveting. It's history. It, it's living history, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts? Any other observations? Okay. Andrew, I wonder if you could close us in prayer. Sure. Father God, we thank you for your servant Luke, who so diligently recorded these events happening. Father, we thank you that there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, let us not take that for granted or try and use you, but God, would we rely on the strength that you offer to us freely as those who follow you. Uh, Father, we thank you that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. Uh, Father, this morning I pray again you would help us to have eyes to see the idolatry in our own lives. If there are areas that we need to sacrifice and to burn, uh, to get rid of in our lives, and Help us to put you first in everything, God. We know we cannot do it in our own strength mm. because we do want to put ourselves first. Uh, and yet you offer us the strength to put you first. So help us to do that, we pray. Uh, be with us this morning as we worship together. We praise you and we love you. Amen. Amen. Amen.